Hey guys, and welcome back to the Natty Scene. We are joined by another fantastic guest this evening. We have Mark Oakes with myself and Lee. Um, and in this episode, we're going to, again, sort of similar style to the ones with Michelle, Lucy, Stu, Damo. Um, we're going to go through a little bit of, of Mark's career and past history in bodybuilding. And also we're going to ask some, some listener questions as well. Before we get into things a little bit, uh, on on Mark himself from from me. So um, I've obviously followed Mark for a long time since I got into bodybuilding and did the first show with the UKDFBA when it was 2015. I did my first show with the UKDFBA. Followed Mark from from that point, and I remember that was one of the first sort of times that I saw anything about like low volume training. I read one of your like text style interviews on a website. And I read through about your diet, read through about your training. And at that point, like I looked at it, I just thought that can't be the way that I could train. Um, Cause in 2015 I was training with a lot of volume and, you know, completely different style. And then in 2016 and 2017, I did the same thing until I, I then flicked a switch and started to realize that a lot high level people were doing that style of training. So that's a little bit of a background as to how I got into following Mark. And then luckily enough, obviously, through my affiliation with the UKDFBA in terms of being at shows and just being present with the team, especially going to Worlds. I've been lucky enough, lucky enough to get to know Mark um, a little bit more, spend some good time with him, train with him. Um, so yes, it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure getting to, to know Mark a little bit better and quizzing him on his bodybuilding journey. So it's a pleasure to have you here, mate, and I hope you're doing well. Pleasure to be here. Um, I think you missed the fact that we've actually shared a room twice yeah. at, at Worlds. But um, okay, is this the, the PG version of the of the podcast? Okay. I think, I think the listeners are now way more interested in following up <laughs> based on based on that, mate. Um, so I think to kick to kick things off, I'd like to just get into a little bit of a. I mean, I'm sure you could go on for quite a while on this specific question, but a bit of a background on yourself, sort of how you got into, into the sport of bodybuilding and where your, your journey really began competitively as well. Yep, no problem. Um, I think first things first, when, when you say that you've, you read a text interview of mine a while back, um, folk who've, who've been around the scene a, a few years, anything that they've read about me a few years ago Fundamentally, my, my beliefs around my training and all the, and the rest has not changed. Um, so I guess you'll probably see some of those threads moving forward. The only things that will touch on that have perhaps forced some change upon it is injuries and, and, and age. Um, so my background, I started doing gymnastics when I was four years old. I started doing karate when I was seven years old. Um, so from an early age, I did a good chunk of kind of strength related sports if you like um i did karate from the age of seven through till 21 um really enjoyed it it was something that i always thought i would go back to but but never did um when i was at school i uh, went to secondary school that was very much a rugby playing school um and they had a gym at the school so when i was 15 found my way into the gym for the first time largely fueled by friends of mine who were going um, youth hosteling on their push bikes, which back in the day was a thing that people used to do in the summer holidays. 
can people remember that kind of thing? Um, AJ, I don't mm -hmm. imagine that, that you know. Anyway, so they started going to the gym. You're going to get a lot of that. People <laughs> now. Um, so they, they started going to the gym to get fit, and, and, I, and I tagged along, if you like, um, not wanting to be left out. And, and it coupled really well with the karate that I was doing at the time and the rugby that I was doing for the school. Um, loved it straight away, if you like. Um, then I fell into training at the local YMCA. And that was, um, that was probably quite a critical time for me, really. So I would have been in the sixth form. I think I'd have been 17, that kind of age. And started training with the guy who was the manager at the, the local YMCA. So he was a young guy, um, relatively speaking. He was like 21, 22. So my kind of age, more or less. But was already married. Um, so training at the YMCA. Um, and at the time, he was competing as within the AMB. Um, so the AMB at the time was the only natural um, bodybuilding federation, natural drug free. I'm not going to split the hairs, but it's the only natural federation at the time. And he was competing as a novice, um, and he'd he qualified for the Britain the once. Um, so I started training with him. Um, Really felt like I was living the dream at the time because um, I was training at the YMCA. I was also training at Lily Road in Fulham for anybody who knows that part of London. I think Lily Road is still there um, as a council one place now, quite a hardcore gym back in the day. Um, and I just want to check, can you hear me? Because I've just had a flash up that my internet connection is unstable. You're, you're a bit, you're a bit like... Have you still got me? But I can still hear what you're saying, mate. So keep Yeah, going. we're there. We're all good. Let me. Okay, all right, that'll fix that. Um, so Lily Road. So I used to go, go and train once a week at, at Lily Road, sleep on Darren's floor, um, and he used to drop me back in at school the following morning. So as far as I was concerned, this was like Rich Gaspari training at, at, at Gold's Gym in Venice. Um, so I, I, was, I was completely there. Um, started competing at the the age of 19, um, egged on by this training partner I had and another guy called Julius Francis. Um, Lee, do you remember Julius? Um, oh, I remember so Julius. If it's AD the Julius. About a, yes. Um, so he won the AMB Britain about a thousand years ago. Um, big guy. Um, so I started competing at the age of 19. Um, since the age of 19, I competed more or less every other year. I competed when I was 19 and 20, so two years in a row, then pretty much every other year, right up until 2007. Um, I had 2009, so in 2007, I had a motorbike crash. Nothing, nothing heroic, but um, I broke a thumb and tore my rotator cuff and I needed shoulder surgery. So that, that put me out for that year. So I returned to the stage 11, um, 2011 and competed in 13. So that's some light on me, please. I can't do it. Because it'll burn the history of me competing, if you like. Um, did one NABBA show. It's touching speaker. There, Mike. Yeah. You there? We've got you. Yeah. You still got me? Yeah, we're good. 
you just went, you know, I think your internet connection is a little bit up and down. I've got you on the phone now, so okay, give it a go. Keep going. So you got up to talking about NABA. Yeah, so not huge amount to say about that. So I've competed, we'll say, with AMB, um, MPA, UKDFBA, WMBF. Um, done one NABA show along the way and one UK BFF show along the way. Awesome. Cool. So in terms of like where you headed from, from sort of those competitions, those initial competitions, did you, did you find out that you had uh, like a lot of bodybuilding potential straight away or did your results indicate that you needed to put in work to get to where you are now which you know for anyone that doesn't know mark is a very successful natural pro so what were your initial shows like in terms of dictating that route so uh, i i certainly wasn't blessed with success in terms of results early early doors um competing in the juniors was yeah much the same as it is now i guess it's was quite a hit and miss affair. I think my first show, I came second out of two. Um, went to the five, second or third out of five or something. Um, following year, I think I came second out of three or something at the qualifier. Came third at the final. Um, came third to Pete Chown, who went on to do some decent stuff naturally. And Sai Fan, who's been in the news recently, um, was in second place. So Sai, um, he's been in the news recently and I'm sure all the bodybuilding community are glad to see him fit and well, because um, he's, he's been in, he was in hospital with coronavirus and certainly was taken quite bad. Anyway, so I competed against him back in the day. Um, then I went on and competed as a, I think a light heavyweight. Um, so five weight classes as an amateur and I was competing at, kind of high 70 kilos, that kind of weight, and not really placing anywhere. I'd, I'd normally sort of qualify for the finals, maybe, that, that kind of place. I did a couple of, um, like an open UK show where you just turned, you know, it was a, like a one-off show. So I never, I never did brilliantly. I was sort of there or thereabouts. I'd, I'd like to think I wasn't making up the numbers, um, and I was, but I certainly wasn't winning. I, I would argue that I don't have a lot of bodybuilding potential, a lot of potential for bodybuilding even now. Um, I don't think I am blessed with a great shape for bodybuilding. Um, I think what I have got, and if this isn't a useful skill solely for bodybuilding, this is a, an, an asset throughout most parts of my life, is that I am incredibly stubborn. Um, and when I put my mind to something, I will keep going. Um, and, and as you know, AJ and uh, people who've seen how I diet, it's basically, that's my plan and that is what I do. And when I'm dieting, that is what I do. And when I'm training, that is what I do. And I, you know, and I will not stop. Um, and I think a lot of that was born out, in, in all honesty, out of, part of that is internal and part of that is born out of the style of karate that I did from a very young age and the way I was taught at that, you know, seven, eight, nine years of age. Um, I think if you look at the the natural bodybuilding greats, who people like 
Mitch Gosdecki, people like Brian Whitaker, these guys who we know, people like Rob Hope, yeah. And I've stood those are three names that I'll drop because I've stood on stage next to all of them. They all have better structure, one would argue better inverted commas genetics. Um, but I would argue that the genetics that I bring is the, the, the mental aspect of the game. Um, so I think I knew at an early stage that I had that because I've competed from the age of 19 up until 41. And I don't think there's many people that have got that amount of years of dieting and training hard. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely it does. I think, and it's good information. It's good for people to hear that because a lot of people in this day and age, especially newbies, like people who are starting, that they have this art of comparison straight away because they're not they're not just stepping on stage and comparing themselves to other athletes like you were when you're 19, 20, but they're posting a picture on social media and then they're seeing someone else post a similar rear double bicep or front lat spread and they're thinking, well, they've got a smaller waist and and also, you know, you add in the fact that people can filter or edit photos and it's just a, a, an absolute minefield for a lot of people. Um, and I think perhaps it's just nice to hear that, you know, even if you don't have the best genetics or the best structure or shape or whatever, you can still work extremely hard to battle through those things and come out the other end, you know, winning pro world championships, um, which is, you know, the, the top echelons of the sport. Awesome. You know, hard work will will win out often unless you have hard work and genetics. You know, I mean, it's said many times. I can't remember what the expression is. Um, hard, hard work, hard work beats you, talent when talent doesn't work hard. Through this today, if you push the right buttons, I'll bend. Yeah. Um, do you know what I mean? One of the things that pushes my buttons is people who want to start training today imagine they're going to qualify for the british final tomorrow because they and i'm like look i get that natural bodybuilding is a very small thing within bodybuilding which is a small thing but parking that what other sport do you imagine you're going to take up today and be competing against the best in the world within a year's time even if it's a really small sport you know um the arrogance of some people expecting themselves to be able to do that, it, it beggars belief for me, to be honest. And perhaps that's because it took me a long time to get there, but I don't believe that it's a common thing. You know, I think the, the amount of people who've gone from naught to, to, to superstardom in such a short space of time, we can count them on one hand and they are the people who, so I'm going to, I'm going to call out Rob Hope who, and I'm going to call him out because I beat him once and there's like about four people on the planet that ever did that. And, and I like to think that I got that, that killer shot in early, like the year before he got really good and then never lost again. Yeah. So in 2002, I think it was Lee, please. I think I was almost gifted the result. I looking back at the videos, I still don't really see what the, the judges saw on the day. I'd have gone the other way, but I'm pleased with the result. And then from 2003 onwards, he never lost again. So he went like within the space of 12 months from having never been, he's not that he'd never trained, but never been seen to just winning out the WMBF overall. And I think he just gave up when he just got bored of just like, there was no more challenge. You know? 
Do good. <laughs> but those people are very, very few and far between. But I think that's a good thing for the rest of us, you know? Mm. Um, if, 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 the, if those, you know, genetically gifted superstars, if you like, are few and far between, it means for the rest of us that really have to work and graft, if you put the time in, then you can, you can turn that around a lot. Um, and bodybuilding is a sport that rewards that. Um, but what it doesn't reward is the people who just want it there tomorrow, especially naturally. And I, and I mean, I can't comment for, for assisted athletes. I've trained with some and they work just as hard. It's just different. Mm. Awesome. Lee, do you want to take the direction of the conversation next and lead the way? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a brilliant point there, Mark. It was the same as the comparison I made on one of my earlier shows with AJ where I was talking about buying a pair of skis and heading straight for the black slope. You know, you, you just don't get good at things really quickly, do you? Nah. Um, and did, I don't know, the audio was breaking up a little bit earlier when I chimed in with that phrase that we were trying to remember. Did you get it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, it was the audio was going crazy at my end. I don't know. I don't know if it was working for you guys, but it is true. It is true. You know, natural talent is very important, but hard work will be deciding factor. You've got to put it in, haven't you? And it's it's interesting. You 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 talk back to the style of karate that you did when you were uh, when you were a youth, or well, sort of when you were a child through to through to an adult. Really, um, obviously, I've spoken before about being seriously into my martial arts for years and years and years and i know a little bit more about your background in martial arts and, and i'm not not suggesting we we spend ages talking about that but what what were the kind of things in terms of discipline and structure around your martial arts training that that you went through back in those days that gave you the the you know contributed to the mindset that you've got now i, I I certainly remember being tasked with doing things as a child that you that you'd probably be arrested for these days. So I remember um, not keying loud enough when I was about ten, maybe that kind of age of being told if you don't key loud enough, you're going to go running. And when we went running, that was a mile lap around the cricket. Um, so it's a cricket pavilion that we used to train in. It was a mile run. So we didn't key loud enough. We all went running at the age of ten. The thing that I haven't told you about this story is that this was round about January and there was, without exaggerating, you know, two inches of snow on the ground. And we all went running for a mile, bare feet, in our gear. That's how we went. I remember being, you know, just our stances checked with just bamboo, can't hit with the stick. But, you know, not, not, you know, you don't flinch or cry about it. You just, you stayed strong um you know hundreds of press-ups the irony is trying to do 100 press-ups during lockdown um what fueled me to decide i was going to try and do 100 press-ups in lockdown if anybody's seen that that was something i decided i was going to do um at the beginning of lockdown i put it up on on instagram was it just occurred to me that when i was a kid i used to be able to do 100 press-ups like it was nothing so i should surely be able to do that again so we used to you know regularly do things like that um waterfall training at the beginning of the new year, I, I encourage anybody to, to, to um, go on YouTube, you go to Wales or some other cold place, um, uh, normally at that period between Christmas and New Year, 
Um, so it was, it was a hard style. Um, fighting was full contact, um, no punching to the face, but no, no, nothing on your hands. Um, you could thigh kick. It, it, was, it was a hard style. It was a hard style. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough to be taught by, without a doubt, somebody who's legend and, and one of the best. So um, handshake of the style to fight 100 people one after another and you have to win or draw to keep going. Um, so super hard guy, super fair, very, very caring for the, for the kids in, under, his, under his tutelage, but we, we knew which way it was up kind of thing. Um, you just kept going. But anyway, enough about that. But I, I think that, that I think that, that sowed some seeds at a young age. I mean, it's, it, 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 so it does really sort of reflect in your attitude now, both as an athlete and as an official, that you've, you've, you're like yourself, you, you've, you've been fair with everybody and you, you, you give a toss about everybody, but black and white is black and white, isn't it? Yeah, no, no, I'd say it. So, yeah. moving away from the bodybuilding competition side of things, then, and I sort of uh, intimated, like, sort of your, your official status now. Um, obviously, everybody will know you. You you've been officiating with the UK and the FBA since you retired from competition in 2013, haven't you? And yep. you're now the, the vice president and the, the head of the judging panels of of, of the association. How do you feel, if at all, your mindset towards athletes and bodybuilding in general, in terms of the competitive side of it, shifted from when you shifted from being an athlete to an official? I don't, I'm not sure if I'm understanding the question. My, my mindset towards the athletes didn't, didn't change at all. Um, I think the advantage that you have as a judge, if you have competed, is certainly one of empathy. I think it's also one of knowing, with the greatest of respect to the athletes, when they're taking the mick, basically. So we ask people to hit the poses. We expect people to hit the poses. And I can tell when people are taking the mick. I'm going to be the one who doesn't swear, by the way. I know you're keeping track. I will be the one who doesn't. So you know when athletes are taking the mick. You know when athletes are playing the ignorant card by standing incorrectly and, and trying to lead you down the garden path of, no, no, I, I didn't realise. And you know that it's because they're trying to put their body in certain positions to hide their flaws, you know? So you're less likely to be mugged off. Um, Equally, you recognise perhaps more than than some how much effort it takes to, to stand on stage. And I'm not talking about how much effort it takes to diet because that's great and hope. I don't care how much weight people have lost. You know, when people at the weigh-in or afterwards and they ask for feedback and I should have done great because I lost four stone. Well, I absolutely don't care. In all honesty, um, if you want to be rewarded for how much weight you you've lost, then I'd suggest this is the wrong sport. I think you know Weight Watchers is is good for that. Um, but I recognise that the physical effort to stand on stage is 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 huge. You know, I recognise that you know you can have a bad day and cramp more than you would expect 
to, especially if you've been flying or you've not been drinking as much water as you would do normally. So I think you have to have an empathy for, for the athletes. I think if you've competed at a good level as well, I think you're more aware of some of the things that help an athlete to do their absolute best on stage, to present their absolute best package. And part of that is without a doubt the, the, the vibe and the buzz in the audience. So bodybuilding shows aren't a pantomime. You know, Lee, you're a great MC. I'd like to think I've, that I've done a while at it as well, you know. But you mm. see some MCs who are like, you know, getting the crowd to cheer, but almost in a, in a pantomime villain kind of way. And it's just a bit, uh, it's just a bit, it's just nonsense, basically. And I don't think it helps the athletes. If you can genuinely get the audience involved in a show themselves and if the athletes are enjoying themselves it's much easier for them to pose for longer and pose harder and if they're doing that it's easier for them to show the best that they that they've got um so i think competing in in that way brings that um i think the other thing to call out is i massively value my role as an official um at the at the uk dfba and and equally at the wmba Right from whatever usually, and I know you're often there the day before, but whatever time we get there through to the day to the, to the second that we leave, we have the longest days. Okay, mm. um, and I massively feel that that is my responsibility to the sport that has helped me enjoy so many things in my life. I've met my wife through the sport. I've made some of my best friends through the sport. So that is my chance to give back. To the sport and it's my chance to give back to the athletes i'm going to name drop again so i'm going to name drop andy palmer for those of you who don't know who andy palmer is shame on you shame you on you go and look that up um so wmbf pro back in the day um won british titles all sorts back in the day um and I vividly remember at the age of whatever, 20, that kind of age, queuing up like you do to weigh in, um, except back in the day you had to queue up with your CD in one hand or your tape or whatever it was, your CD to give in your music and all of that. And having Andy Palmer there, the other side of the scales weighing me in and thinking, wow, holy cow, I've seen this guy on, on stage and he's amazing and I know he's won things and I know he doesn't know who I am or care who I am, but I'm being weighed in by Andy Palmer and that's great. He's here helping me get on stage. So if I can give back even a little bit of that sensation to people, and it's not about the big I am, it's not about being starstruck, it's about there are people like, you know, AJ, as an example, or anybody who comes to the show, who's seen you compete, perhaps some people have been around the sport for, for long enough to see that, um, or have looked stuff up. Um, so if having people who competed at a, a good level and who are um, respected, even doing the simple stuff like checking people in, if that can help people, athletes feel that the show's important and it's been taken seriously um, and that there's that kind of aura around it, I think that's a good thing. Um, so. That, that for me is again something that I've taken from my experience as an athlete that you, I would want to pay it forwards. Um, so the next thing that annoys me, yeah, is mm -hmm. I don't think we see enough of that mentality these days in the sport. 
okay i think we see people who um and some classes are more guilty of this than than others i think um, athletes who are successful in in a class um but then they expect to, to take 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 from the from the sport or the federation and i'm not talking about financially but they expect to take but there's not enough giving back into the sport um you know part of the reason why we work so hard at those shows is because there's just about enough hands to go around you know if there was a few more hands to go around to pack away chairs to do some of the crap jobs then then the days would would, would be shorter so i think that paying forward is, is really important and it's something that i took from the sport excellent and uh, I've got a little side branch that I can go off from that one, which was which which I'm really looking forward to asking. But just on the last uh, sort of bit of the bridging the gap between uh, fan slash athlete and official, because of course you're still a fan now, even though you're you're not competing anymore. Do you find that you view physiques differently? Say from sitting on the front row of a show watching a physique on stage to sitting one row forwards on that judging panel. Yes, you're going to view them with a different perspective because you're now judging them rather than enjoying them. But have you started seeing things that you never saw before? Oh, completely, completely. I think when you're when you're sat as a as a fan, you're drawn towards the type of physique that you like. You know, so if you uh, if if you grew up watching videos of the '90s bodybuilders and and you liked Lee Labrada then in, sat in the front row, Lila Barda, the Lila Barda-esque physiques are, are, the, are the best ones. If you grow up watching, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, you know, if you were a Dorian guy, the, and, and we see more of the different shapes in natural bodybuilding. You know, I think you could argue that the Olympia, clearly, uh, I think it's overused when people say they all look the same. They don't all look the same. I think if you think they all look the same, then you don't know what you're looking at. So I think even, you know, the Olympia, they do all look different, but I think in natural bodybuilding, we do see a greater range of, of, of physiques. And I think when you're just a fan, you're drawn to the physiques, that are the type that you like, or that have got the, the body part that you particularly like, either because mm-hmm. you've got particularly weak legs, for example. So you like the guy with really strong legs, or it's just suns out, guns out, and you just like a guy with big arms. Or do you know what I mean, I think you get drawn to that. Um, I, you know, I think front row of the of the audience, it's very easy for people to just go, oh, he's got shredded glutes, he should win. Judging in the front row is not that simple um, because it's not about one body part. It's not about one outstanding body part. It's not about one lagging body part. It is about the, the whole thing. So I think you see it certainly differently from the, the, the front row. Not just in terms of you, you actually see it differently, do you know what I mean? The, the lighting does look different when you are literally sat. Do you know what I mean? A meter, two mm-hmm. meters from, so it physically looks different. It looks different because you're looking at the physiques in a very different way. So you're looking at them objectively. And I would argue that 95% of the people, probably more in a bodybuilding audience, for them to look at it objectively is almost impossible because they have come with someone, they've come to support someone. And the closer that relationship is for them, the harder it gets. Like if it's their, if it's their husband, wife, partner, whatever, son, daughter, whatever, very hard to be objective. Um, if it's somebody who you've been following their journey on social media, perhaps hard to be objective. 
Um, so, but as well, I have no friends. I don't follow anyone on social media, so <laughs> it's easy. Do you know what I mean? I don't, I don't care. <laughs> no, I get you totally. And do you, do you find, yeah, like I say, from that fan perspective where you you zone your attention in on the kind of physiques that you like the best, the, the, the ilk of physique that you like, did you ever find it difficult to remove yourself from that as a judge and say, okay, I know I like that kind of physique better, but on merit, the the other guy, the other girl is actually better in terms of the scoring process? Because I, I know some judges do suffer quite badly from that, where, you know, if somebody themselves is a bit of a condition merchant, you know, they, yeah. the, you know, they will get onto a judging panel and place highly conditioned bodybuilders higher because that's their thing. And yeah. so on and so forth. No, did you did you find it difficult to move away from that? Yes, I did. It's a very fair question and a very fair challenge. And I think any honest judge who doesn't see that in themselves is 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 probably deluded. Um, I think I was definitely. I'd like to think I'm a better judge today than I was, you know, five years ago, six, seven years ago. I'd like to think that my scores six, seven years ago weren't awful, but I think now I, I, I think I get it right most of the time. Um, but I think I can recognize in, in myself, you know, when I first started judging, <clears throat> I liked the physiques that I wanted to be like, which were the, you know, thicker granity physiques. I really respected the, the, the maturity of, of muscle and I still do because I think that that is an important part of a physique, you know, that the hardness. Um, but I sort of cared less perhaps for, for shape going back in time and it's possibly because that would, I guess, mirror where, where I was at back in time. Whereas I think, yeah, as, as, as you become more experienced as a judge and as you see more you know you see more physiques uh, and arguably the stakes are, uh, are raised you have to move away from that um and i would hope that the judges around me would certainly have very serious words with me if they thought i was going in any one direction you know and arguably i think the thing that people forget because in many cases they don't know this in the first place of judging panels is, is a number of things. Firstly, the judges don't collude on, on what they think, you know, so we don't all sit about five, seven judges, however many you've got on the panel and all sit there and go, what do we think and decide it together? Yeah. So if I'm sat on a judging panel and I am completely way out with the scoring, you know, I've put somebody first or last who completely shouldn't be, my score will be discounted and it doesn't matter whether I am head judge on the day or if I am on the judging panel, you know, that, that doesn't count. Um, and I think people, some people don't, you know, they don't realize that. So you're going to lose two scores. I think that's important. And I know you spoke about this in one of your previous podcasts. I'm not going to label the point. The other thing that, again, I think people don't realize is that it's not a collective decision. Like I say, that we all, we all huddle around and, and talk about it. That's not what it happens. That's not what, what, happens um sometimes you know i'm i'm not gonna i'm not gonna lie about it sometimes you do see judges talking more than they should um and on judging tables where to be fair i haven't got to be the head judge to, to do this but definitely when i'm the head judge if i see too much of, of chat going on before people have finished their scoring then i will ask them to it's their own scores leave them to it, it you know it, it's your opinion and nobody else is on the judging panel 
Um, and I think that that's important, whoever the head judge is on a panel is to, to work with the team of judges that you're at to keep it as, as straight as you can. But then, you know, when all the scores are in and done, of course the judges are going to talk to the people next to them because the scoring's in, they're fans of the sport, especially if it's um, the type of format where opposing doesn't count, which for, certainly for the amateur classes, it doesn't count. You can have a chat about the guy that you see, the girl that you see, what you really liked about them. Um, maybe even what did you see in this physique? What did you see in that physique? And I think if the scores have happened and they've been passed off down to be counted, yeah, so in, it, what you're seeing and talking about, in essence, has got no bearing at, at that point. I think judges having the conversation with the person next to them around what have they seen and comparing mental notes, if you like, is no bad thing um, because that is how the judges learn. So. I know you've spoken before about how we go through probationary judges and then people um, are actually scoring. That's because there are a standard to judge, a standard that we trust them to judge and to get it right and to get it right most of the time. And the times that they're not getting it right, we understand that they'll be the top and bottom scores and they'll, and they'll be moved to one side of, of their scoring. But I think those small conversations that you have with people help the judges learn. And I think it's naive to, to think that you, you don't get better as a judge. And I think sometimes those, those small conversations that you have will help the judges learn and makes them be better. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's where we want to get to. If all the judges were perfect, we would only need one. You Absolutely. wouldn't need a panel of judges. You just have one. No, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't have hit that any, uh, any better on the head. When they do the 100 metres, they don't have five people timing it and then take the average of the middle three. Do you know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. it's just one. But we, we don't, you know, we're not gifted with that. It's not that type of sport. It's not a definitive thing, is it? It's, it's, you know, it's subjective, not objective to a degree. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant answers. Um, I've got a couple of topics I want to I wanna go on to. Before I do, AJ, have you got anything you want to pick up on? Uh, yeah, I was actually just going to add something on the judging side of things. So... I know, obviously, at the UK shows, um, not so much at the British level because we have big, big lineups and we have a lot of people standing at the back and then we call them out. Um, and the qualifiers, obviously, some of the classes are small enough to have everyone all on stage at once. But the Worlds um, had everyone all in one big line. How did you, how did you manage that as a judge? Um, how did you manage to pick apart where you need to, to move people, especially in, you know, the pro classes where you're looking at physiques that are very competitive all against each other. Um, because obviously that's a very high level of judging. I'm just interested to hear as to how you found that. That's a really good question. Um, how do I find it? The first thing you find it is slightly daunting because you can't get away from the fact that there's maybe 15 athletes or more on there and that they're all, brilliant yeah a big big lineups that a qualifier are pretty easy to pick apart so i hope nobody takes this misunderstands what i'm about to say if you have 15 athletes at a qualifier the chances are that five of them are, are definitely the last five yeah the greatest of respect to them they've worked hard i'm sure but you know so straight away you, you can get rid of those the chances are your top three to five are probably pretty obvious as well. Do you know what I mean? And then you've got this middle group. So you probably more or less can, can put, your, put your back end of the field to one side mm -hmm. and you can start to compare the top end. Um, now, 
whether they're all in one lineup or whether you're doing call outs, you're still looking at those 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 top three to six athletes. So at, at um, a domestic level, it, it, it's, it's easily done. At the international <laughs> level, it is, it's daunting because the fields are bigger in, in many cases. So 15 is, is pretty common and you are, spread, you, know, you are splitting hairs often. You know? um, the advantage that we have at the WMBF is that the stages can cope with that um, normally. So in terms of physical size, so if we think about many of the venues that we use domestically, they're just not physically big enough to put, you know, 15, 20 athletes on. Now, I know opinions really divided on this as to whether it's ideal to have all 15 athletes on the stage at one time or whether to, to go in, in call outs. My personal opinion on this is I like having all the athletes out in one go for a number of reasons. Firstly, the margins are really small. OK, so if you are an athlete that's come sixth seventh eighth at that pro world final yeah you're still great and if we have all the athletes out at the same time there will be photos that exist somewhere where you are on stage at the same time as the winner and then that means you don't have to waste everybody's time and ask for feedback you can look at the photo that's your feedback you can see photos from the front from the side from the back and you can compare yourself to the winner and i think that's really valuable as an athlete Secondly, if you've traveled all the way to the States, unless you live in the same state that it's going in, it's a big effort. It, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an emotional thing. It's a financial thing. It's an everything thing. If you're in a big lineup, you're in every call out. So you get to really, you get your best value for money. And I don't mean financially. I mean, in terms of the experience, you really get to live that experience. You don't just get, I'm in one call out because I actually came 10th, but it was the world stage where I did one call out after flying 3000 miles and went home that you don't have any of that. So again, another reason why for me, those big long lineups really work. And the lighting is, is normally good and consistent all the way along. As a judge, I don't approach it any differently to, to any other way. In the States, the way that we do it is slightly differently to the way that we do it in the UK. And it's got its pluses and its minuses. I believe it's got in some ways more minuses than well, actually it's kind of even keel because at the WMBF, I would argue that all the judges are a really high standard, you know, because they're all head judges or, or whatever of their local affiliate. The way we do it in the UK is most shows is I'll head judge and Lee will do the MC. And that allows us both to focus on one job. Because as we know, multitasking, especially for us blokes, isn't a great thing. So Lee can, he can do the MC thing. He did a great job of it. He can talk about the athletes. He can control the athletes, movement, do all of that. And he doesn't have to, at the same time, be thinking, well, what's the first call out going to be? Who am I going to place? When am I going to place it? I don't have to think on the mic about, you know, entertaining the crowd. Uh, what's the next part? Any of that stuff. I can just focus on the judging and I can be very clear about what the first call out is. The way it's done in the States is that as the head judge, you do not keep a scorecard, which the first time I went there completely threw me. I was like, this is very, un I just couldn't get my head around it. So in the States, they still have the same thing of having an odd number of judges, um, an odd number of scoring judges. Yeah. Um, and then they have the head judge. So the head judge will be on the mic, which is why you'll have heard me babbling on, um, on the, the webcast or whatever. You have odd number of judges. The head judge has the mic and the head judge 
does all the comparisons. So you are responsible for shuffling the line. Now, whilst as a scoring judge, you could still place first in first place the guy who's right on the extreme of the lineup. But it's going to be a very bold judge that does that because you'd be properly pushing against the tide. Yeah, The head judge is responsible for, for organising the, the athletes to the centre who he or she feels he, because in, in my case, so who I feel are the, are the lead athletes and I'm responsible for putting them in the middle. That's, again, you're not so arrogant as to think that that's always right. And if the other scoring judges want you to move it around, you, you can still do that. Yeah. Um, so even with those big lineups, you adopt the same approach of going, right, who fits the criteria that the, the closest? Yeah. And let's get those people to the middle. Um, the only difference I would say about when you're picking it apart at, um, at that WMBF level is it's harder to put people to the, to the outside because you have, to, you have to go back and you have to check yourself. Um, it's much easier. And again, I don't want athletes in the UK to think they're being overlooked. If I put you into the bottom third of that um, pan, I mean, in my head, if you're in the bottom third, the chances are I, I, I'm very confident that's where you're going to place. At the WMBF, if I put somebody at the bottom third in my head, I will definitely, definitely come back and look a second and a third time to make sure I haven't got that wrong. Because if you're just looking at somebody not quite right, they're not quite flexing, whatever, the light hasn't quite hit them right, you can make mistakes. Um, not mistakes that, you know, get taken to the bank, if you like, but mistakes that you go, you know what, I need to bring you back into the middle. And that's why, again, those being in every call out, I think adds value in the States. Um, or, or wherever they have the world final, but on those big stages, I think it adds value. And that's why, so I've been fortunate enough, so I've competed in the States uh, twice, 11 and 13, and I've been, and I went last year and the year before, and I certainly, the years I didn't go, but I was still recently retired. So everybody who goes to the States, the entire time you're on stage counts. So every single call out counts, every comparison counts. But as a judge, I will sometimes still look to the guys when they're just before they're doing anything to remind myself of who is number 27 in my 20 man call out. Um, so work, work, work on stage. So, yeah, that, that's how I would pick it apart. It's no different, but you just have to really challenge yourself around the lower placings. And that's, again, also partly why the, those contests in the States go on too long. Mm. too many rounds of call outs that could be fixed because yeah. once we've got to the point of understanding who our bottom third are bottom half are you know once you're completely sure about that i'm not suggesting that we, we you know, however many if we're placing five athletes i'd only place the top six like we do in the uk okay Cool. Thank you. Does that much. give you confidence as an athlete that you'll get a fair shake of the stick? It, it does indeed. I mean, I, I knew that anyway, but I think that, that hearing that sort of thought process as to how you manage that big call out is, is really interesting. Um, and it makes, it makes me now look at that a little bit different and think, oh, okay, that is actually a manageable process as opposed to me thinking in the audience, how the hell are they doing this? You know, mm. so, um, and I'm sure 
Uh, I knew there was going to be a way that you would manage it, but it's just nice to hear it. So, yeah, good answer. The other, the other just by parting shot on this as well, the other thing that I will do as a head judge, and I do this when I'm head judge and I can get away with it because I know Lee absolutely hates it, um, and I know they're not always a fan of it abroad. I love it when I can put just two athletes out at a time. When it's... Like, like when it's, Jay. Like, like what's, yes, yes. <laughs> because I was in the audience at that, that was the, that was the 2012 Olympia you're talking about, wasn't it? Yeah. I think so that's so. the year I got married. Okay. So I got married in Vegas. My wife is, is so Heather Oaks, Heather Smith at the time, a massively decorated athlete in her own right. So interested as well. So we went to the Olympia, we were there. Um, we've done that i've done that at more than one show and i think where it's where it's so close that you're not just doing it for the sake of it i think it really helps the athletes and i think it really in terms of making it an occasion and i think it means something um in terms of spectacle for the audience and i don't care if it gives away who's coming first and second because it doesn't tell you who's come first mm. and you know i don't think i don't think it's i mean i don't think it's a big reveal so i i love it is that your if it's problem? the right time and right place. Is but I don't your... think... Yeah, go on. Is that your problem with it, Lee? Is it, is it that it gives away the result or is it wasting time? Or... <laughs> it, it, I think the reason I dislike it is probably a combination of the two. It's probably that, you know, I, I, I'm not a big fan. As a judge, I'm not a big fan of repeating things that we've already seen. I, thought, I think if you're looking... You know, those two people that get called out were inevitably next to each other in the first call out in a normal judging process. So we've seen them together once already. You know, we, we, we should have made our minds up. However, I think you did it last year at our finals, didn't you, Between in the heavyweights between Ben and Solomon? Yeah. Mm, yes. Did that happen last year? And, and, and that was probably the first time I enjoyed it, and I'm coming round to it a little bit. Because that was that was a really really tight battle between those two guys. It was really one of those could go either way competitions, and I think having the two of them out and they both really got into it as well and worked super hard because it was pretty clear that we were weighing them off against each other. Um, and I certainly think at sort of finals level where it's needed, I won't I won't bump my gums so much about it in future because I did enjoy that. Um, Just to be clear as well, I don't often do it because I need it. To make the decision i've normally made the decision i do it because the audience haven't made a decision you know i mean they've all made their own decision but i think having it out there just adds adds to the atmosphere sometimes yeah yeah and, I, and i'd agree because the crowd really picked up on it as well didn't they they really loved yeah. it they really loved that we did that and i certainly think at the finals in the open classes where the guys are really really good i think it's well worth doing you know i I probably I probably won't be doing two person call outs of the you know, the over sixties at the novice qualifier, for example. But you know, no disrespect to those guys, but yeah, yeah when it's when it's when, it, when it when it's two absolute top notch guys at a big show, I don't think it all girls at a big show. Then 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 I don't think there's so much of an issue as it, as I used to think there was. But that's that's one of the interesting. That's one of the best things about Mark's and mine work. Mark and the working relationship that Mark and I have is that our differences in opinion or differences in the way we do things. You'll probably agree with this, Mark. Bounce really well off each other because 
sometimes we do things that I wouldn't have thought of doing because Mark's mindset is the opposite and would suggest something. And, and we take each other's sort of thoughts on board, don't we? In terms of the, the running of the association, the contests and stuff. And I, I've, I've loved it. I've loved having it as a working relationship. And I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, when, when, when the vice president of the association is a guy who's got a hashtag, you know, what would Mark Oakes do? Uh, bouncing around the internet, then you know that, that that's a thing, isn't it, Mark? People say, still say, what would Mark Oakes do? You know, in in in, in this situation, then I think it's a it's a privilege to have somebody that's generally that respected and that trusted on board. So, and it's it's never usually a problem to take his views on board. In all fairness, never usually a problem. Thank you. Of all of our, have all of our audios caught up with each other? Because I know we've we've bounced around a little bit. I think they're actually the best they have been so far. Superb, superb. Okay, so now the, the the thing that I wanted to touch upon earlier was was obviously you've competed across eras, haven't you? From the, the sort of the early nineties as a, as a junior competitor, right up until the millennium as a top level pro. And you've seen everything there is to see on the way. You know, we can have we can have conversations now where you know we'll talk about Rob Hope, we'll talk about Julius Francis, we'll talk about you know back in eleven when you and Levi Burge were amateurs on stage at the Worlds together. You know, and both yeah. of you have gone on to win pro you know world level shows. Do you? I mean, I'm sure you'll agree, like me. You, you, you're. You, you consider yourself a, a bit of a student of the game. You know, we, we have an interest in what's happened in the past and where bodybuilding's come from. And, and I certainly feel this way, but I'm wondering if you do too. Do you feel that not enough people are like that anymore? Um, the short answer is yes. Yeah, the short answer is yes. I think... Some of the classes aren't, aren't blessed with heritage yet. So I think it's quite hard for the physique guys, as an example, to, to have that because the classes have only been going for however long they've been going. Um, so most of those guys, the guys that, that won it first time, the first few times around, didn't have a lot of heritage anyway. You know? And I think that's why we've seen the evolution of, of, of the physique class. We've seen the physiques change so much because people have been training do you know what I mean? And in that way. So that, that's been part of it. Um, but yeah, I think the, the bodybuilding fraternity, um, so the bodybuilding classes, sorry. Um, I do think there's, there's not enough. What am I trying to say? People could, people want to learn really quickly. Yeah. And so they want it all on, on Instagram and social media and they want this magic bullet. It's all there for them. You know, it's not about, some whatever the latest I, I mean i agree with science I, do you know what I mean as a thing you know i work for a healthcare company i did a sports science degree so i get that science is a good thing but i also get that you know citing one paper out of context with something that was done on marathon runners and then trying to you know marry it to bodybuilders makes no sense i also get that non-controlled studies or even controlled studies and then trying to relay it you know whether you're drug free or assisted or whatever it's all there in terms of there's a lot of people who have done non-controlled experiments by basically training themselves 
and they can say, I did this and this is the effect that it had. It doesn't mean that, you know, AJ can repeat how I ate and how I trained and look the same as me because he's, a, you know, he's, he's made of different stuff. Um, I think the thing that has shifted a lot for me, um, and this is going to sound, I don't know how this is going to come across like grumpy old man. So I've born you now, I guess. When, when, I first, when I first met Andy Palmer, way me in, I was starstruck by it. You know, when I used to go to the pro-am, pro-am classes, it, it knocked, you know, it knocked me for, for six. I was impressed by it. If, if, if some of the top guys at the time, Ralph, I can't even remember his surname, but the, the guys who, who you know, won stuff back in the day, you know, if I could speak to them, I, I was happy about it, you know, um, and I had a lot of respect for them. I don't see that respect and i'm not talking about for me because i get that you know the last time i competed was 2013 that's seven years ago which for, for bodybuilders that's you know that's a very long time in some cases christ i mean seven years ago some of our athletes were barely joining whatever age they were at um i don't see that kind of respect being given to people who are you know three four years ago competing because people walk up to shows and they have no idea who they are you know um when i see i'll i'll, I'll cite rich you know um i'm still blown away by how many times you introduce him on stage and people don't really know what the guys achieved within our sport, you know? And it's not like it's different federations and things. Like you're coming to the UK, the FBA, he was the first guy to win it. Um, he's one of very few guys in this country, I think only three, Rob Hope, um, John Harris and, and Rich, who've won the overall WMBF maybe. Very yes. small numbers, very small numbers, you know, who, who've won that, uh, you know, very small numbers who've won WMBF pro titles. And people don't know who he is. Um, it doesn't pay the bills, but I just think that kind of respect is is something that that would help in terms of just good feeling in the sport and, and a heritage for it. Um, and again, in a kind of a pay it, play it, pay it forward way. So the guys and girls that basically want to start to win tomorrow. I do question what they, why they want to build. It, you know, it doesn't pay expenses normally, um, but that respect is something that, that that's that's I think oftentimes missing. Where you know, you know, if people behave arrogantly and don't deserve it, then yeah, you know, cast them aside. But very many of our, you know, current and and recent champions deserve respect because they carry themselves professionally. I'm not talking about in the pros, you know, they carry themselves professionally. Um, they represent the country, small, you know, small sport within another small sport, but they represent the country. Um, and I do think that there, there, there should be more respect. And I, but I, sadly, I don't think we're going to see it. You know, no amount of me being a grumpy old man, you being a slightly less old, equally grumpy and, and AJ, well, you know, not old at all. And, and, you know, a bit grumpy. Um, do you know what I mean? No amount of that is, is going to change that, you know. Um, I think there is a difference between the people who absolutely love the sport of bodybuilding 
who will be the people who will be perhaps watching this podcast going, now, nah, Mark, you've got it all completely wrong. I've got respect for everybody. I know who you are. I know who Rich is. I've seen who Rob Hope was. I, I'll go back in time. You know what I mean? But then there's everybody else, which everybody else. Then there's the chunk of other people who are fueled by social media, that kind of thing. And, you know, what I would say is they're in it for different reasons, you know? And if that's what keeps them training, keeps them healthy in many cases, keeps them motivated and encourages them into the gym, then, you know, that's great. But it's not for me. Um, and I do find that that's where it sometimes jars, um, inverted commas, in the bodybuilding world. Because then we have this very different objectives and desires and drivers for people and you mix them all back to stage at bodybuilding shows and I'm, I'm not sure that that's well it's just not as nice as it used to be if I'm honest um and the sport is smaller you know I know people quote big you know big contests and I know we run some of the biggest natural bodybuilding contests within the UK mm-hmm. but in the 90s the, the, the British finals were like 110 people, but they were only bodybuilders. Yeah. They were only bodybuilders, you know? And there was like, well, I can't even remember, four or five weight classes. There were the three. There were three weight classes, like yeah. The, yeah. The, body, the women's bodybuilding, the, uh, uh, a teen class that there was nobody in, the juniors and, and a novice, and, and that was it. And you'd get to 110 guys and girls very few do you know I mean and, 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 and that was there so the lineups were huge weren't they yeah and thick deep but anyway mm. so to answer your question yeah I think that there's there's less students of of, of history and I do think there's a lot to, a lot to learn from from some of those, those people um, saw a thing just recently um, a post picture somewhere of Rob Feasy who people will either not know who he is or and i mean this with the utmost respect if rob's seeing this because rob's physique today is nothing like it used to be you know so if they know rob feasy today they'll have seen him competing as an over 50s and doing all right yeah but rob feasy when he was at his best was an ugly physique and he still is but he was unbeatable because he was the first person to get in great condition but he had a ton of muscle. It, it wasn't aesthetically pleasing the way it was arranged, but he had a ton of muscle. And at the time, I wasn't judging, but the judges couldn't see past it because he had a ton of muscle and condition. So, all right, he didn't have good shape, but he certainly had two of the three things that you're really looking for in bodybuilding. Most people have got no idea who he is, you know? He won the lightweight league, if I'm wrong, in, an, you know, in assisted federations, which... You know, it did, yeah. The UK BFF Championships, yeah. Lightweight champion. You know, won world titles as a natural, British titles, and no one's got any idea who he is. Or what, or not who he is, who he was, you know. Um, yeah. Andy Palmer, who was at the WMBF last year, people were talking about, oh, he's the master that we bought for the first time. I was like, are you joking? This is like the home, you know, this is like the king's come back. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. And I think if people knew these things about, you know, people's past achievements and, and, you know, another one, uh, you know, I mean, like you're absolutely right about Rob, you know, 
back in back at his peak, back before he, he I, I know he, he injured himself in the mid two thousands, and in all honesty, was never the same after that. But back when he was at his peak, I mean, I was at the at the A and B Britain in ninety six when he won the novices. He was a unit. He, he he wasn't even conditioned then. He was just a unit. You know, he was so big that he smashed everybody else. And then it was either a year or two after that he came back and won the middleweights. And again, just had too much muscle for everybody. And then when he cracked that condition on top of it as well, he was out of this world. And he was the one that set the bar. He, he set the bar to the point where people started losing their limitations and saying, wow, you can be that good as a natural bodybuilder. You know, and, and for those of you that don't know, and I've had this conversation with, with, with AJ recently when we've been talking about adapting to training at home. You know, Rob Feezy built that physique and got in that shape and won all those titles, training in his garage. His garage. You know, he didn't have an Olympic barbell. He had an, an imperial barbell with regular barbell plates on it that he'd squat and bench and deadlift with. He used two piles of bricks as a squat rack. Um, you, you know, he, he went on his honeymoon up into the up to the Isle of Skye. I remember his wife telling me years ago, went on his honeymoon to the Isle of Skye and filled the boot of the car with barbell plates and stuff so he could train while he was on his honeymoon. Um, the guy just lived and breathed training. He didn't need fancy machines. He didn't need anything. You know, he just trained like an animal and just kept repeating and repeating and repeating the process until he reached a standard he was at and he gets nowhere near the level of respect he deserves for what he achieved and, and for what, you know, what we've all carried forward from what he said. So you're absolutely bang on bringing Rob up, uh, an absolute legend, you know, it, it, you know, in, in, in my opinion, you know, if I'd have been in his shoes, I'd have probably retired after the injuries. So people did yeah. remember me at my best. Yeah. However, He's got incredible passion for the sport and he carried on going and he still enjoys it. So fair play to him. Um, you know, Lee Williams is another one. We had Lee Williams up to present the trophy at one of our shows last year. You know, people don't remember, don't know who the guy is and yeah. it's scandalous. You know, he still holds the record of being the youngest ever overall British uh, champion, youngest man to ever be given a WMBF pro card in this country ever in history. You know, WMBF Pro, Musclemania Pro, another guy that won the uh, the, the IFBB's yeah. UK Championships here. And I think, I know he was certainly awarded IFBB Pro status, and I, I think might have competed as an IFBB Pro, clean as a whistle. You know, and people, people need to study the sport to see these people because there are some incredible inspirations in the sport and people just don't study it enough. It's like a boxing fan not knowing who Muhammad Ali is. I think you hit the nail on the head there as well, Lee, because it's not necessarily, I mean, as much as I've said, there's a lot you can learn from them, which, which there is. Ultimately, like lifting weights is basically that. You lift the weight up and you put it back down again, you know, and the rest of it is just an after-dinner discussion over how many times you do it. Um, but you've hit the nail on the head there by saying there's inspiration out there because Rob is another one who, you know, genetically had not a great, set of cards in one regard but in the other regard of t building a ton of muscle and, and getting it rock hard definitely had the genetics for it but yeah mm. it, it's the inspiration i think that you can get from seeing people's journeys that that have you know that have gone before and the achievements that, that they've been able to, to to get well certainly now and i mean i'd encourage anybody that's listening to this podcast now specifically the people that are wondering how they're going to get by for the rest of the year if they have to train in the garages 
Google Rob Feasy. Have a look at his physique. Have a look at the articles. I think Ian Duckett used to do a magazine called Natural Press, which I think you'll probably still find snippets of on the internet somewhere. Some bits of it made it onto the internet. And, you know, I, I've got, I think I've got the issue with the article in, in, in my archive somewhere, literally using two piles of bricks as a squat rack and winning IFBB pro cards. You know, if, if anybody ever needs any encouragement now more than ever, that you you know you don't need to be in a gym using pieces of equipment that cost five grand each to build a half decent physique. All you really need is is the will to do it. Then then he's the man to be looking to, isn't he? Yeah, for sure. I think in terms of people listening as well, like thinking about how they're going to find out about these people, how they're going to find out about more of these people in the history of the sport. The only the only way that I ever found out about it was just being immersed in the sport. Mm-hmm. And being around you guys, being around people who have been in the sport for decades. Um, I would have never have known about these people, unfortunately, and it is mag- mega unfortunate. You know, I'd have probably known about Rich um, because he is present on social media and he's still active. But I'd have never known about Rob. Um, you know, I, I'd, have, I'd have never have found those pictures of him or that guest spot of him. Um, that video, um, that I think it recently, recently got reshared as well, and I watched it again. Um, and it's just insane. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see what was possible, you know, that, that much of time ago when arguably people had less information about perhaps what was the right way to do things. Um, and people were maybe training more simple manners with less machines and less perfect sessions. Um, and it makes you it makes you start to think, and even especially Lee, you know, so right in this period of time, where we're all worried about whether we have our our hammer strength shoulder press or our perfect cable stack. You know, I don't, I don't think Rob was was worrying about those kind of things, and and he had a, a fantastic physique to show for it. I don't think he's ever ever touched a hammer strength machine in his life, <laughs> to be honest with you. No, uh, he's he built that back doing chins from the beams in his garage, I think, uh, Rocky Three style. With, his back was absolutely insane. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. Ridiculous. It's like four dimensional. And, and as well as that, I'll say about Rob as well. I believe um, Rob and Joe, last time I checked, had uh, taken over Health and Strength magazine, which yes. is the, the oldest physical culture journal in the world. Uh, they took it over from Roy Edwards, who'd run it for as long as I'd known it being run. But, um, you know, Rob, so passionate about physical culture in general and about the history of the sport. You know, he didn't want to see health and strength run onto the rocks when Roy retired and he took it over himself. I, I don't know. I haven't seen it for, you know, a little while. Um, but, but yeah, uh, you know, that's a guy who was just mega, mega passionate about bodybuilding and just wanted to be the best he could be. And, uh, yeah, not a nice fellow with an incredible contest history. One of the, one of the true legends of the sport in this country, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Cool, Lee. Do you want to go on to any more topics, or should we should we go into listener questions, or do, have you got any of your trivia questions to ask? Or I've just got my uh, three quick fire trivia questions left to do, and then uh, and then then we're I'm done for the day. Okay, cool. So I've got. You some- want me to go? Yeah, go for it, mate. Okay, Mark. After that. Enormous bodybuilding career, 1992 to 2013. 
discounting contest wins because that's low-hanging fruit. Everybody's happy when they win a contest. What is your happiest memory of bodybuilding in that time? Is it is it is it a technical foul if I say what seeing my uh, my wife win? That feels like that's probably a technical foul, no, isn't it? No, it's not. No, not a foul. No, that would that would be that would that would be that then. Um, that it would be that. What watching watching Heather win a British title um, 20, 2013. I was going to um, say which one? She's got three. She's got yeah. It would have been the twenty thirteen one. Um, because I had won the British also on that same day. Um, so, well, for starters, I didn't think it was going to be much fun going home if, if, if one had won and one hadn't. Um, but no, that's not the case, you know, all joking aside. Um, it was an interesting one because I, 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 felt, I felt confident going into that show. Um, I, it was more of a a fear of losing than, 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 than the other way around you know I was just more of a sense of relief to have won it because I, I felt like I was going to win um, and I you know was very co- conscious of that you can't be objective when you're that close to the person you know so I had a, a mile ahead but do you know what I mean I was aware that I probably was going to think that anyway um, so yeah I think I think it would it would be that um, it would be that um, and my, my second one I'm going to have one was the, the first time at the WMBF as head judge um, where the reality of having to do the mic hadn't completely dawned on me um, when they just went here you go and I was like okay so I'm doing that am I no problem um, and there's like 10,000 people on that webcast as well that mm-hmm. dialed into that live um, so yeah that, that, that focused the mind a little bit as well um, yes, I was super proud to represent, you know, UK DFBA, the you know, the, the federation at, at that level. Um, and for me as a judge, I would say, yeah, Kodak moment, I, I really enjoyed that as well. So it'd be that, that, that would be, you know, it'd be those two things. Brilliant, brilliant moments. Um, how about then the funniest thing you've ever seen happen at a bodybuilding contest? On or off stage? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I heard Lucy, uh, Michelle last week talk about, you know, people getting drunk backstage. That, that's just standard fare at, at many shows, isn't it? Um, actually, the only one that did, did tickle me slightly, um, I'm not sure if you were there, but Neil Ashley was definitely there. So, again, an, another guy who used to compete very successfully. Yeah. Um, naturally back in the day so i mentioned that i did a naba show once um so this would have been 2011 uh no 2007 this was I think. it was 2007. 2007 so i was due to do the muscle mania it was cancelled with like a two weeks notice a week's notice or something um so i was desperate to get on stage wanted to do a contest it's like my first show to, to start to tighten up found that you could do like NABBA basically by turning up on the day and you could pay your membership, pay your fee and get on stage as long as you had your CD. So we, we did all of that and I went with Neil, Neil and I did, they didn't want to let me backstage. Um, the security guys back were like, no, it's only athletes backstage. I was like, no, no, I'm in it. And they were like, yeah, no, I'm sorry. No, you're not in it. I was like, no, no, I'm in it. And, and so NABBA's high classes for those for listeners who don't know, it's his high class. So I was in like the, the, like the, the quite short but not really short class, I think. 
Uh, Us three. There you go. And, and they were adamant that I, that I, I couldn't possibly be in it. Because especially in clothes, you know what it's like when you're natural and shredded in clothes, you look like yeah. nothing. Um, so that was, that was entertaining. But then we went backstage and I stripped off and I was in good nick that year. I mean, I was, I was, I was in good condition. Um, and it was great to strip off. And that was the comedy moment was these guys who I was giving away stones and stones and stones to were like, who is this guy? Where has he come from? Um, and I placed third that day, you know? Um, I remember. Yeah, I was there yeah. instantly. And then, like, I wasn't having a fun enough day as it was. We, because we weren't, we hadn't done the, the honourable thing of staying till the end of the day. You know, I was happy where I'd come third. I had a trophy. The, the field wasn't, it was like eight people in the lineup. There was mm-hmm. people who had been to the university who were particularly grumpy that this small guy had turned up. And we were literally leaving the door, leaving the auditorium when they announced best presentation. Best presentation. And that was me. So I had to leg it back on stage, change my top for, I'm sponsored by the gym and Biocare, still sponsored by Biocare, um, and legged it back on stage to, to collect my best presentation trophy and a, a year's worth of um, whatever they were called at the time, Dorian Yates Nutrition, I think it was at the time. Mm-hmm. The Dorian Yates brand was at the time. So yeah, that, that was entertaining. Yeah, and funny, certainly entertaining. Yeah, I remember that day. We actually we were at the show it was the Nabi UK, and it was actually in the same venue that I did my first ever bodybuilding contest in, where I met Damien Lee's uh, Putty Putty Civic Hall. You know me with venues. We yeah, no. Venue every year, and I don't know until I get there where it is. Yeah, I remember it well. I've actually got. I thought about this. Nobody's ever going to ask me this question, so I'm going to fire mine in on the end before I hand over to listeners' questions, but. Funniest thing I've ever had happen to me at a bodybuilding contest involved you. So seeing as we've got you on the podcast today, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna fire it out there. So my last question for you then: biggest gym fail ever? Uh, oh, there's. I had a couple of near misses in the school gym when I was, <laughs> but unsurprisingly, so we used to, you know, school. AJ, you were at school not that long ago. You remember like school desks, yeah? We used to put two school desks piled on top of one another and that was our squat rack. So like epic gym fail where you miscue that and just knock the desks over. So no one got hurt with that. Um, We used to bench off of, you know, like the school benches that used to be thick on one side and like gym beam on the other side and, you know, turn them out. We used to bench off of one of those with with a gym mat on top. So like two people would pick up the, the bar and, and pass it to you so not, not olympic bar we just had like normal bars and stuff and i remember the guy or one of the guys that was passing tripping over the, the mat and dropping this thing and me getting up just in time to so yeah lo- loads of stuff like that um yeah I, I, the, the challenge with lifting heavy weights is that you know inevitably things break and i don't just mean like your body just stuff does uh, it's nothing heroic, but just stuff like that has, has happened. Oh, ha- doing preacher curls. Uh, this was training at a gym. It's, it's always gyms that you don't regularly train in, isn't it? Where things are slightly mm-hmm. different heights and angles. Um, I remember falling off backwards off of a preacher bench. So putting my, you know, being over the preacher bench and adjusting myself as you do and not balancing it right and, and, and yeah, falling backwards. But yeah, it's just stuff that, you know, you stand up and pretend it didn't happen, don't you? Oh, no one saw me that. No, no one saw. No one saw. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah. Sort of do that. 
we all saw. Uh, so my closing anecdote then, probably the funniest thing I've ever seen at a bodybuilding contest that's, that's loosely involved me. Um, you'll love this one, AJ. It was 2013, and it was the WMBF Pro World Championships uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts, near to, near to Boston. And, and, and as people who listen to this podcast uh, will probably gather Mark's, Mark's an all-business kind of guy. When he trains, he trains hard. You know, he's still got that get-the-job-done mentality that, like we say, from the karate and the running in bare feet in the snow and sticking to the diet no matter what. You know, there's, there's one way to the bullseye, and it's a straight line, and, and, and that's what he does. So it won't surprise you to know that when he's backstage pumping up to go on stage, he gets a little bit intense, slightly, slightly focused and into the zone. And I remember the the thirteen worlds. You're gonna you you're remembering this one now, aren't you? Yeah. yeah the thirteen worlds were backstage at uh, in in the school in 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 Boston, where, where the university where the auditorium was. And Mark's pumping up, and he's got you know he's tanned, he's oiled, he's he's looking the business. He's got this insane pump. And if and if anybody needs to sort of have a look at a picture from Mark from the 13 worlds in, in, in Boston to, to get a, the picture of the sort of shape he was in. Absolutely frightening out this world. And I was standing with Mark. Heather was there as well. And Amy, my wife was there and, 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 and Amy looked at Mark, looked at everybody else. Like everybody's like every other guy in the class was just staring at Mark. They'd, they, they kind of resigned themselves to the fact that they were all getting their asses kicked in front of a big audience that day. Um, and Amy looked, looked to Mark and said, everybody's looking at you uh, with really envious eyes, Mark. And he just, he, he looked back like a bad guy from a Steven Seagal movie and said, it's not envy, Amy, it's fear. <laughs> and then just went back to pumping up. And it was the funniest thing I've ever seen because a few people heard it, heard us have the conversation, and and you know, it it, it really it was really unsettling. People, everybody was thinking this guy's going to come on stage and eat me alive. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but in, in the moment, it was just uh, it was probably the funniest thing ever. I think I had to turn and face the other way and piss myself laughing. Excuse my language. I I, I was sure I wasn't going to swear today, Mark, because you were on, but. Yeah, that was one of the funniest moments I've ever had at a bodybuilding show, and that was the intensity of Mark Oakes filling filling the room and basically unsettling the entire lineup. Uh, what it does that as well. Double joking aside, there's here when you talk that back though, there is something that in there for me, and that's that a lot of these moments that are the funniest moment in in you know my career, yours, or whatever. Maybe they're not that funny for the for other people listening but i think it's but all joking you know but i think it's an insight into the, the 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 friendships that you make with people through the sport especially if you're part of a team um, and whether that's a, a, a you know a team to meet domestically you're there with your training partner or whether that ideally that's the, on the on the on the international stage and you're there with a team and we all know what it's like you know when you're there with your mates and you're having a laugh things are hilarious but people on the outside it's not so much um and people ask me if I miss competing. And of course I do. I mainly miss winning. You know, that was the thing I enjoyed the, the most about competing. And I enjoyed the process and all the rest of it. But that, that's those special kind of relationships that you have with folk, whether it be teammates or people that are helping you. Um, that is something that I think is priceless about this sport that we're involved with. And, you know, I have 
phenomenal relationships with the um, with the organisers now, with the committee, with the with the with the UK DFBA massive who turn up and run the shows. But it is different to the relationship that you have with other athletes and 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 supporters when you're competing. So I guess what I'm saying is I apologise if neither of our stories are that funny. But at the time when you're in it. I think it's just an insight into into the close relationships that you can have with, with folk. Because we we all found it we all found it highly amusing at the time and still do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> AJ's oh. like a border. I've got some other questions to ask. No, no, no. Yeah, I found that I found found that funny as well because that's something that in the limelight of that moment I would have probably said as well. Um, just <laughs> weird focus that you have backstage you sort of forget what you're saying and you go into sort of a very uh sort of deer in headlights moment um so yeah questions wise got a few and the actual well, one that's relevant to that topic in the sense of 2013 so it's from dom ray and he asks uh what happened between the british in that year and then the worlds because he seemed to think that you managed to drop down another weight category um but just in general context for for specific years did you ever come from a british and then aim to diet more weight off to get to a certain weight category i.e the bantam weights at, at worlds yeah no um, um 2011 2013 were both the same in as much as i did several shows so i i I, you shared this question with me, so I did check. So in 2013, I did five shows. And in 2011, I did a bunch of shows as well. Um, with my intent always be to do kind of like a, a sighting lap first show, one that I, I, do you know what I mean? That I, I want to be good at, but I fully expect that I can't be at my best. It's not that I don't even want to be, it's just that I can't be. I absolutely believe I have to be on stage more than once to be at my best. But that, you know, tightening up, slight rebound, it allows you to just check that your tan, I mean, you might have used the same tanning products the year before, but your skin might respond differently. Um, all of those things. I think you have to do a low hanging fruit show. And for me, the last couple of, you know, those have often been assisted federation shows because, well, it's all up for grabs. No one expects me to do all that well, who cares kind of thing. So I always tightened up after each show. Um, between the British and the WMBF in 2013, I was nine pounds lighter. But what I would say is I think those are, that's slightly an inflated weight loss. And the reason why I say that is that the weigh-in at the British would have been, oh, so we'd have got out of bed, we'd have had breakfast, we'd have gone to the venue and we'd have weighed in. So I would have had food inside me and all the rest of it. Yeah. The weigh-in at the WMBF was an interesting one in 2013. So if you've seen photos from 2013 and the overall lineup, which is actually my other Kodak moment of the four guys in the overall lineup for the, for the pose down, is that there were four guys in that lineup for the overall. And it was at the time, the first time that had ever been the case, as I understand it, for the pro lineup. And the reason for that was that when we had the athletes meeting the day before, the lightweight class was going to be ridiculous it was going to be like 25 athletes or something mm -hmm. so they were like right we can't do this there's just too many of you so we're going to weigh you in um so the way i got weighed in first thing in the morning and we'd flown the day before so i drunk gallons and gallons and gallons on the on the plane um very much of the mentality of i, I will make sure i don't hold water by just flooding 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 myself 
And I've never had a problem with holding water on the plane when I've flown transatlantic because I've always done that. And I drink a lot of water when I'm dieting anyway. So I drank and drank and drank and drank and drank. Um, and then I'd been up all night weird and had insisted and I'd made sure that I didn't eat anything or drink anything first thing in the morning until I'd weighed in. Because what, they, what we knew they were going to do is basically split the lightweight class into two. Um, and my rationale was I want to be at the top end of the, the lightest class, which is normally where you would rather be rather than. And I also knew that that was going to separate me from Levi Burge, who is built like a tank. And I don't really understand how he's ever a lightweight or how he ever was going to be a lightweight. I think psychologically i'm quite tough at contests and there's very I, I don't fear anybody at the end of the day we're not fighting you know all these people are do you fear anybody well no it's bodybuilding we're going to be there in our pants oiled up like there's only so much damage that can happen you know so to the point where i competed against rich gosdecki in 2011 and i was adamant that i could beat that guy you know I, and, and that was the best place to be. I wasn't, I would, you know, we trained in the same gym at the same time and I was convinced I could beat him and I went to that show thinking it. And when he beat me and I had to compete against him like eight days later, because we were both doing a show, I was still convinced I could beat him. And then, yeah, after twice in, in the space of like two weekends, I was like, okay, he's just too much for me. Yeah. And I perhaps had the same mentality with Levi. So I was like, right, I need to be in the light class. So when I weighed in, there was this nine power, uh, 0.9 of a kilo difference between the British and, and, the, and the, the WBF. But I would say is that I was, at the British, I was weighing in with fluid inside me and breakfast. At the WMBF, I was completely, completely bone dry. Um, that said, there was, there was a weight drop, yes. The other thing to, to not be fooled by is that um, the British that I think Dom is probably talking about is a different federation. So that would have been the MPAs where the weight classes were different okay. um but at the uk dfba um i would have been competing as an amateur middleweight awesome went to the states in my head going to be a pro lightweight and then the bantam weight wasn't a weight cut off the bantam weight was basically the bottom 50 percent of the lightweight class but yeah it felt unusual having started my bodybuilding career as a junior competed briefly as a heavyweight Mainly, I think people would associate with me with being a middleweight. It's probably, if you had to, you know, what does Mark Oates compete as? He competes as a middleweight. So, yeah, it, it, it did feel unusual to suddenly be a bantamweight. You were, you were very close, though. I remember that year, 13 at our UK, UK championships. You were very close to the lightweights there. You were only just over 75 kilos, weren't you? 75.7, according That's right. And then... And then you dipped, what did you weigh in at the Worlds? 74.8. 74. So right. Because I, I know that the, the lightweight division at the time was 165 pounds, which was 75 kilos on the nose. And I know that the guys that ended up staying in the lightweights were like literally all 74.9 or 75. Yeah. And you at 74.8 put you in the bantamweights. So I think when people hear bantamweight, they think that you dropped a massive amount of weight, don't they? But the, the bantamweight was a tag given to the class as opposed to a weight limit. Yeah, and I'd be completely candid about this. I'm incredibly proud to have won the, the WNBF 
but pro bantamweight, yeah? The, the pro classes, the WMBF are next level. They're off the hook. That's as good as it gets. And I beat some great athletes. Um, I'm under no illusions. If I'd been in the lightweight class, so I was, I, I was more concerned about Levi than I was Brian going there because I'd competed against Levi before and he's a tank and all the rest of it. And photos of Brian, so it's Brian Whitaker. For those of you who don't know the sport, I suggest you Google him. Um, well, photos of Brian Whitaker. I was like, oh, I, I can take him because I think that about everybody. Um, but the photos don't do him justice. No, is, is all I would say. So when when we were backstage, um, we weren't in the same class. And you know, he is a he is a genuinely from Mike. I've met him a couple of times. A genuinely lovely guy. Like, you know, the humblest guy you could wish to see. I think he's won the WMBF five times. I think loads um genuinely genuine nice guy um but when you see the guy his physique starts to move you know i get in good nick he gets in equally as good nick um but he's got a bone structure to die for muscle bellies to die for he poses like the pro that he is um i'm under no illusions if i if i'd have been 0.1 of a kilo heavier and been in that lightweight class i'd have come third i, I would have come third very magnanimous of you to say that i wasn't in but i wasn't in that class because i did what was right for me on that day which was i made sure that i was as light as i could be i weighed in as a bantamweight and it was an interesting change as well i'd gone from thinking i can do well at this this is the pro world this is amazing i'm gonna this is lovely do you know what i mean to i can win this class and mm. you know obviously i was sharing the room with heather heather was competing in the imbf that that year in the bit body and the figure classes um said the amateur divisions um and it was a definite a switch that, that you know when i realized i was in the lightweight classes and i distanced myself um partly by design from levi and brian i was like i can absolutely win this um and i think it showed in my just my demeanor going on stage yeah. i don't think i'd have attacked it i think i'd have been beaten mentally and that would have probably been the first time that's ever been the case to be honest, um, I still, when I see Levi on stage, I still can't get over how light he is. Yeah, it doesn't. Like, on the scale. Oh, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, when you see the like, size of him. He must have hollow bones. Yeah. Um, but then seeing the weight he lifts, that can't be possible either. Has, has Levi won a Pro Worlds? I don't no. think he has. He came second last year. He have done, but yeah. Well, come second on. three or four That's times. <laughs> So I think he falls has fallen foul of the way the judging has been set up in the past. And I don't know what the judging will look like in the future. And that's because we run a three round system with the WMBF. So they run round one, round two, round three. Yeah. Levi will not often. He, I mean, he's a fantastic bodybuilder, you know. In round two, he's going to be, I think, almost impossible to beat. And in round one, he's really good. But I think last time when I saw him compete at the Worlds, the guy that beat him in round one, beat him for round one, the Spanish guy, phenomenal shape and structure and symmetry. And, and I'm t talking about symmetry in its truest sense. So his left side matched his right side. Phenomenal proportion, top to bottom. Phenomenal balance, front to back. And you know, showed it all off immaculately. So one round one, and Levi came second in round two. So, you know, splitting hairs. Round two, the other way round. 
So, and then you've got to split it on round three. Well, for me, the, the, the Spanish guy won round three by a knife edge. So I wasn't keeping a scorecard on that because I was head judge, but that's so I was arranging the, you know, but that's how I would have seen it. And that's how I imagine, well, I imagine that's what happened, you know, but if it was scored in the same way as we score it in the UK, which is we don't score the posing routines because posing routines are entertaining, but it's very hard in a 25 man lineup, a 20 man lineup, a 10 man lineup to do something really objective with that. If we were just going, who's the best bodybuilder? Who's got the best package in terms of size, symmetry, balance, proportion, all of that, and used the round one poses and the round two poses as one thing, Levi would have won that world. All day long, all day long. So it's not that he, you know, some people will say he was robbed or this, that and the other. It's not. It's that the criteria and that the way the judging is scored at that level with the three rounds and all the rest of it, that was that was the way it is. Yeah. You know? Um I think in other other days, I think there's even classes that they run where you don't score the third round. Yeah. So you have round one, round two, and in the event of a tie between two athletes, you go with round one, which my personal opinion is that's not what it should be about. No. But you can't be a judge for a federation and go, well, I don't think that's right. I'm going to go against the rules and I'm going to do something else. Yeah. The rules for the federation, whichever the federation is, those are the rules that if you're a judge, you have to judge by. And that not all federations have exactly the same rules, exactly the same emphasis. So yeah, anyway, that, that's Levi. Phenomenal bodybuilder. If you don't know who he is, um, I see him on, I think it's Facebook probably. He trains in Levi's House of Pain. And I haven't worked out if that's his garage or if it's his own gym. That's um, his basement. Is it? I thought it's it the basement of like his that. house. Yeah, he's on Instagram. He's, a, he's an Instagram guy. Again, uh, incredible a really nice guy. I've only met him a couple times. Very humble, um, God fearing guy. A chain's really hard and heavy. I can guarantee as soon as you follow Levi, you're going to put overhead dumbbell extensions into your or EZ bar overhead extensions into your into your arm routine because you just see his triceps and you're like oh I'm not doing them should be doing them um I think I immediately put them in every one of my sessions after all <laughs> he has got a brutal brutal physique hasn't he he has won world level like the equivalent of a world title before he's won his class at the Yorton Cup at least once okay uh, I know he was he was the OCB Yorton Cup champion last year and and the last I heard, I think he, I think he kind of realises that the OCB scoring system suits him a little bit better. So, last I heard, he was intended to only compete with the OCB from from now on. Okay. Um, I hope he changes his mind and comes back because, in, in my opinion, personally, and I'm totally bought in on what Mark said about the the three round scoring system. I get it, I do get it, and I do get how it works. But um, you know, in, in my opinion, in that Pro Worlds last year, he was the best bodybuilder in the whole show. He should have been the overall world champion last year. Mm. You know, in, in terms of the actual physique that he presented on stage. Uh, yeah, and it'd, be, it'd be a terrible shame if he never won that show. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree yeah. with both points. And just one final reference on that question. If anyone wants to watch uh, the 13 Worlds, then there is, there is a video of that. I'm pretty confident on, uh, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can you can find I'm pretty sure there's quite a bit of prejudging and then you'll find the the four of them I think it was it was you Brian uh, was it Siobhan and I forgot who won the heavies who won the Abraham Chabay Abraham Chabay mm. yeah, it was good um, 
So yeah, we'll do one more question because these are not like other podcasts where the question answer is about a minute and so it's about 20, which is good. I can do rapid fire if you want. <laughs> no, no, no. We prefer this style of questions. It makes for a better podcast, mate, because half the questions are mm, okay. And if people want to know how I train, Google it. And I mean yeah. that with the utmost respect. It hasn't changed. It's, it's, it's there. We'll, um, we'll, we'll do one slight question on training just, just to touch it. And then you can, we can sort of lead people to the direction of the blogs and the, the forums, etc. So, um, just one question from Anton Smith who asks, does Mark, uh, is Mark aware of, and has Mark ever used reps in reserve or any, um, techniques to basically leave reps on the table with your, with your training? Me and Lee had a discussion about this already, but I can tell by your facial expression that you don't know what that means. Uh, but yeah, reps in reserve. Have you heard of this? Do you know what it is? Have you ever used reps in reserve? No. No, that's good. Not even for warm-up sets? <laughs> no, no, not for warm-up sets. Do you want me to expand on that? Uh, no <laughs> really no no I don't I go to failure um, so at the minute I'm training in the garage you know um, and I'm still going to failure I've got my dumbbells so I've got yeah I said that I'm, I've got dumbbells from 12 and a half to 42 and a half and I'm going to failure it's it, on on whatever creative solutions I can find for the for the different movements and I'm actually having quite a good time I'm quite enjoying it it's like when you first started training you don't have a lot of kit um i guess more recently in in the gym i'm training on my own um and that's been the case for uh, probably a couple of years now um largely speaking because i have got a fairly i've got a chronic back injury now which doesn't massively inhibit me anymore um i had to have five months off training a couple of years ago and i had a bit of surgery and i had antibiotic treatment which i mean i'm happy to talk about it but it's, it's not that interesting um so I did all of that. And so since then, my training has slightly changed in terms of some of the movements, but I still go to failure. Um, when I was full bore competing and training and, and not injured, no, failure. Small, small reps, you know, occasionally singles, commonly four to six, would occasionally do drop sets. Um, and if I do put reps in, so these aren't reps in reserve, but I'm a big fan of doing 21s. I still am. Um, I don't understand why people think that 21s can only be done on biceps. It's all 21. That's what you do on biceps, isn't it? Yes. Or it's what you do on leg press. It's what you do on squats. It's what you do on deadlifts. It's what you do on bench press. It's what you do on any movements. So the bottom third of the movement for seven reps, the top third, for seven reps and then the full so occasionally i would do that to you know rest up the joints slightly um squats for example it wouldn't be unknown occasionally to do 50 rep squats so take um something like four plates aside for, for squat go to failure which might be what you know eight reps or something and i only squat to 90 degrees take a plate off keep going take a plate off keep going until i got to, to 50 reps so i would mix it up every now and then but I mean, yeah, you could argue, well, if you get to 50, that's a real round number. Maybe you've got a rep in reserve. Can't you do 51? Well, no, not really. Um, I always have gone to failure and, and I still absolutely do. 
And the reason why I mentioned training on, on my own now is that when I had training partners, which is pretty much my entire from 19 up until 19 years of age, up until 2016, 17, that kind of time, always had regular training partner. I've only had like about five training partners in my life. Um, I would do a lot of force negatives after. So preacher bench curls. And then when I'm at failure, just grab the broom handle and just do like them resisting it up and down. Um, I've trained with you, AJ. That, that, that wasn't like, that's, I mean, you train really hard. You do yourself, you know, and you're a strong guy. I'm not just saying it. Thanks, but that wasn't a workout just to try and rinse you or whatever. It wasn't like, a, that was just how I trained um with you know with a few niggles so no reps in reserve what are you what are you waiting for so would you want to have a two percent pay cut would you want to have a four percent pay cut everyone says no you're, you're mental so i train each body part once a week yeah which so there's only like 50 weeks in a year so if you start missing a workout or if you start having a workout where you've got reps in reserve and you aren't pushing it, each workout is 2% of your year, you know? So if you start doing that too many times, you're starting to, you know, oh, your body doesn't notice. My body doesn't notice. I'd notice I've had a 2% pay cut. I'd notice I've had a 4% join. You know I mean? So at what point, I don't know scientifically at what point your body does notice, but by leaving those reps on the table, you're giving, you're giving it a chance. I, I, so I absolutely. That's a longer answer. The answer is still no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And do you think, like we talked about this a little bit in terms of um, podcasts with Lee and Ben, but do you think the way that you trained and the way you see people train in a similar fashion to yourself, do you think that it made you look the way you are in terms of total aesthetic appearance? In, in terms of like the way the muscle looks, because this is something I like to hear people confirm. I kind of know what your answer will be, but the way you train in terms of all out pretty like lower volume to a degree with the amount of work sets and high intensity. Do you think that that was the reason why you had that, that grainy, harder, dense look on, on stage as well? Yes. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, I do. I need. Because people still don't understand this. <laughs> still don't get this. Well, people so, still don't get the, the way you train equals the way you I was gonna say, well, here's the longer Here's the longer answer. Is the bodybuilding show is the product of what you do in the gym. So that's how I train. That's how I look. Yeah. Um, or how I have looked. But equally, this is, you know, take any bodybuilding contest that comes on stage. When, what was that guy's name, Lee? The, the Tash and the Olympic rings on his thing. Stephen um, Manuel. Yes. Stephen Manuel, what a beast. Stage. What a beast. Not, not particularly hard, you know, no. um, but savagely dense. And mm. it's no great surprise to find out the guy was a powerlifter. No, no know? surprise. For a number of years. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's what I mean. And, and will be a world-level bodybuilder for a number of years if he chooses if to be. He, yeah, if he wants to be. Um, the guy's, you know, he, he's not alone in being a powerlifter who's become a bodybuilder who's thick as a brick. You know, we've Sam mentioned what? Levi. Sam Watts. You know, powerlifter of, uh, I don't know how many world records and, and the like he's got, but you can tell it in his physique. We've mentioned Levi today. 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting it's the only way of building muscle. And, and, you know, the scientists in there will probably say that there's more optimal ways. Maybe there are. I enjoy lifting heavy weight. I don't like leaving anything on the table. It gets me out of the gym in an hour and a quarter, hour, 20 minutes. Um, perhaps slightly longer these days because I'm doing more kind of rehab type stuff, but that, that kind of length of time. So no, I, I, I think fundamentally. I think the other thing that gives you that grainy hard look is, as, especially as, as a natural athlete, is just timing. I, I think it's almost impossible to, you can get shredded, you can get really hard by just dieting your ass off. Um, and you can do that at quite a young age. I think especially now that there's a little bit more information around there about what it takes. So it's just like, you know, if you diet for long enough, eventually you'll diet your ass off. You might have no muscle left either, but you know, you can get in, you can get into good Nick, but the, the hardness and, and, the, and the granity kind of look that doesn't come overnight in, in very many cases that takes consistent heavy weight. And, and we're talking about years as well. Yeah. I think that's why with, Genetic freaks aside, most of the natural guys who are really good are in their thirties and often mid late thirties. Um, and I think you know the days where the over forties come wheeling out. Do you know what I mean? And oh, it's the masters. Well, in twenty thirteen when I won the worlds, I was forty one. So the reason I wasn't doing the masters is because I don't want to. <laughs> but I could have done. But what's the point in that? Like, and it still doesn't interest me, but it certainly didn't interest me then. You know, and I don't know how old Sam Watt is, but he's older than me. I'm sure if, he's older than me. If, if I, if I uh, revealed his age publicly, he would probably hurt me, so I'm not yeah. going to. So I'm 48 now. He's, I'm pretty sure he's older than me, and he's one shows after me, so he's in his 40s, you know. Andy Palmer's in his... How, is he over? 50, he's 50, 50, 51 now, Andy is. You know? And arguably, you know, Andy's got a little bit of an injury which which is visible and he's not as good as he used to be. Um, but at early 40s, the guy was still, you know, phenomenal, you know. Mm. There's, there's you, the, the, the list of, of top natural guys who are late 30s, early 40s is, is, is long and distinguished. Fantastic. How old are you, AJ? What's that? (laughs) How old are you? Uh, Younger than that. I need a little (laughs) bit more time. (laughs) I'm willing to wait. Um, So, yeah, I think we'll leave that there, if that's uh, cool with you guys. There's so much more we could discuss. We'll have to get you on. We we could be here for days. We could be here for days. We could go into nutrition. We could go more in-depth on training. There's loads of things. Mark, for, for anyone that is listening, I know that we joked a little bit about your content recently on, on Instagram, but um, if, if anyone does want to see your, 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 your profile, um, be a little bit more aware of you, where, where, where can they follow you? What is your Instagram name? Don't know. Natural um, Oak, isn't it? Natural. Yeah, underscore. I don't know if this. There's an underscore in there. Yeah, so Instagram is Natural Underscore Oak. I don't do much on there, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I did do my hundred press up challenge in there. The John Harris Forum. Um, That's a good one to mention. Yeah. Yeah. So the John Harris Forum is is pretty much dead in terms of as a forum, but he's still got content on there. Um, certainly in the articles section. So not just content that I've written that other bodybuilders have written too and it's content that would have been written you know in some cases a decade ago but it's just as valuable today 
Um, if anybody is interested in, in how I trained um, up until 2013, which is pretty much my entire, you know, all of that, what I, what, how I dieted, what supplements I took, because it's not that, it's not that glamorous, it's not that varied, it is on there. Um, and I can answer the questions now, when people, because people have often read that and they've gone, well, did you do this as well as that? Or on a, on a, on a different day, if you didn't want to do that, no. That was what I did every day. If it's not written on those two articles about, you know, how much vitamin C I had, how many, you know, I didn't do it. Okay, I, I did that every day. That that was that. And and the lifting of weights, it's in there. It, it's absolutely in there. It's, it's not BS. It, it was that. So you know, if if those articles still find a home for people and and add some value, then then that's great. Um, but yeah, it, that's the beginning and the end of it. Um, I'm on Facebook. I occasionally put stuff on there. Not much. I normally answer questions. I normally answer sensible questions and respectful questions. Okay, cool. That's good. Stuff. What I don't do is give feedback just no. to put it out there. No feedback allowed. <laughs> no feedback. Buy the photos. Buy the photos. All right. Um, thank you, Lee, again, for joining us this evening. Really appreciate it, mate. Had a brilliant. I've really enjoyed tonight, mate. Really have. Yeah, and uh, again, thank you, Mark, for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, I know you're a busy man, but... Uh, yeah. No, I've loved it, AJ. Um, if, we're, if we do manage to find ourselves in the WMBF fight, uh, world this year in whatever capacity, I'm hoping that we can get there and be healthy and all the rest of it. Um, I'm hoping we will share a room again. I hope so too, mate. Special night. Special night. <laughs> all right guys uh thanks for listening to the podcast we really appreciate it and yeah we'll tune in next time cheers cheers